Thank you. I thank you all for finding your way over here. Good morning, class. Uh, <laughs> um, this is a kind of a dual lecture, although I'm going to be up front with you up front and uh, tell you it's mostly about Herbert Hoover uh, because you probably know more about Harry Truman than you know about Herbert Hoover. Um, but in the end, it's the uh, very unlikely friendship, and it was a true friendship that developed between the two of them uh, that in many ways uh, enlarges each of them. Uh, as an old man who had tasted popular acclaim and virulent hatred, supreme authority, and the political wilderness, Herbert Hoover liked to wax philosophical. When visitors to his, what he called, comfortable monastery in New York's Waldorf Towers asked how he managed to survive the ostracism that had lasted a dozen years after he turned the presidency over to his former friend, Franklin Roosevelt, in 1933, Hoover's eyes twinkled. I outlived the bastards, he explained. <laughs> he spoke prematurely. Today, 43 years after his death, Hoover remains the flying Dutchman of American politics. Disdained by the supply side right as a green eyeshade conservative, stereotyped on the left as a rigid ideologue who spouted orthodoxies while Rome burned. Daddy Warbucks with a Havana cigar clenched between his teeth. His 90 years were crowded with controversy and paradox. In Europe and Asia, he saved more people from starvation than Hitler and Stalin together could murder. Yet he drove to his final campaign appearance in 1932 through crowds of angry New Yorkers shouting, we want bread. An evangelist of efficiency, he wore a dollar watch on his wrist and mourned the fact that his doctors denied him beluga caviar at 89. He found God in a trout stream before a church pew. He is, in many ways, an extraordinary figure. Um, he is certainly an anomaly among American presidents in that he arrived in office with a very coherent philosophy. Uh, now that sounds like a good idea. It turned out to be a ball and chain in some ways that hobbled him when he confronted events that probably no one uh, could have anticipated. Um, he was, first of all, a Quaker, uh, born in Iowa, orphaned at the age of eight. Um, Emotionally orphaned, I think, even before that. He said, as an old man, that he was 10 years old before he realized that he could do something for pleasure without offending God. I think that's very revealing. Um, he went on uh, to uh, live with a Quaker uncle in Oregon and then uh, discovered his real home, which was Stanford University. Uh, he was in the uh, first class at Stanford and for more than 50 years would be a trustee and of course he created the Hoover Institution at Stanford. Um, he went uh, into mining and uh, became well, eventually known as the great engineer before he was the great humanitarian. Um, lived in uh, dozens of countries around the world, uh, turn of the century Australia uh, at the age of uh, 25. He married Miss uh, Lou Hoover, uh, also from Iowa, the first woman at Stanford to get a geology degree. Uh, quite remarkable uh, in her own right. And uh, 
They set sail for China. He had been hired by the government of China at the ripe old age of 25 to develop that country's coal mines. Well, no sooner did they arrive than they were caught up in the Boxer Rebellion. Uh, they were in the Western Colony in Tianjin. Uh, Mrs. Hoover, who was, uh, uh, well, all you need to know is she wrote a letter to her friend saying, by not being here, you are missing one of the great sieges of the age. Um, she would get up every morning and sweep the bullets from her front porch. She thought it was a great adventure. Um, at the Hoover uh, Library in West Branch, you can see two more bits of evidence about what a remarkable couple and partnership they were. Um, they had two children, and by one estimate, by the time they were, f he was 40, he had spent five years of his life on ocean uh, liners, uh, sailing from continent to continent. He had offices on four continents. Uh, he, then they lived, basically they lived in London. That's where they were when World War I broke out. Mrs. Hoover designed a cradle exclusively for use on board ocean liner. <laughs> so because, of course, they wanted to bring the children along. Well, anyway, those five years, they wanted to do something creative, something constructive. Um, they, they didn't want to just, you know, play shuffleboard. So um, their idea of, of, you know, a useful way to pass the time, they decided to translate the 16th century Latin mining scholar Agricola. Uh, it took them three years. Uh, the volume is that big. Um, and for it, they were, received a gold medal, which he said belonged to Lou. She did all the work. But uh, in any event, this is a remarkable couple. You have to think of them as, as that. So where does Hoover, the tragedy of Herbert Hoover, begins in the triumph of Herbert Hoover, and that is at the beginning of World War I, um, when the Germans, of course, uh, invade Belgium, occupy Belgium, neutral, tiny, vulnerable Belgium. And the first thing Hoover does, he's in London, uh, he is the world's foremost mining engineer. Uh, it's estimated he's worth about $4 million at that point. He said basically let the fortune go to hell. And he devoted the rest of, him, of his life to public service. Uh, that summer, in 1914, uh, there were a number of Americans who were trapped in London, tourists. And they had no way of getting home. They had no money. So Hoover put together a group of uh, fellow business associates in London, uh, and they guaranteed $1.5 million, much of it in personal checks without collateral, to these tourists who were stranded in Europe at the outbreak of the Great War. Less than $400 went unpaid. Testimony to Hoover's faith in the American character. Remember that. Uh, that faith was spectacularly vindicated over the next four years. Hoover abandoned his mining career to become chairman of something called the Committee for the Relief of Belgium. This was the first global humanitarian effort ever. Uh, for the next four years, by hook or by crook, he raised a billion dollars and kept 10 million people from starving to death in Belgium and northern France. The administrative overhead was four-tenths of one percent. In response to his appeal, Kansas Millers gave a shipload of oats. The Rocky Mountain Club of New York City turned over half a million dollars, previously earmarked for a new clubhouse. Thousands of local drives produced cash, food supplies, and clothing. All of this confirmed Hoover's view of the American people. In his words, if you tell them what is needed, they will give you anything and everything. 
The winter I ran the national clothing collection drives, I put new tailcoats and tuxedos on every waiter in Europe. <laughs> well, his success in Belgium led President Hoover, uh, President Wilson, to ask him to come home and organize something called the American uh, Food Administration. He became, in effect, domestic food czar. The difference between democracy and autocracy, he liked to say, lay in whether people can be organized from the bottom up or the top down. His own formula was simple. Centralize ideas and decentralize execution. Efficiency was his hallmark. He One day, he had a home on Estry in Washington. By the way, not far from the Franklin Roosevelt's and later the Woodrow Wilson's. Um, and he called his son, Herbert C. Hoover, Jr., uh, into his study, and he asked him whether he had any objection to dropping his middle name. And the boy said, no, but why? Why do you ask? And his father said, well, I'm required to sign my name hundreds of times every day, and if I can drop the middle initial, that'll save me five minutes for more important work. Um, that's another clue to uh, the mind of the engineer. Um, but he wasn't just an engineer. He was an idealist. And that's, you know, just when you want to put Hoover in a pigeonhole, um, he pops out and surprises you. Uh, well, the total cost, administrative cost, of the American Food Administration, which uh, in fact doubled uh, U.S. food shipments to Europe without ration cards, without interruption of traditional economic freedoms, and need to say without heavy bureaucratic expenses. The total cost of this government program uh, was less than $8 million. Um, over four years. Now, the reason is because of publicity. Um, Hoover was a genius at public relations. Um, not about himself, but about the cause. Um, the publicity machine uh, was cranked into high gear, and remember, we're just beginning to have the instruments of mass uh, communication. Uh, hotels and restaurants eliminated wheat products from their menus. There were meatless Mondays and wheatless Wednesdays. Food will win the war took its place along 54 or 40 or fight or remember the Alamo in the annals of patriotic instigation. Blood sausage was renamed victory sausage. Children sang songs about the patriotic potato. Whale steaks were briefly popular and I emphasize briefly. Uh, but one legacy of the Food Administration, the next time you chew a piece of sugarless gum, think of Herbert Hoover. Uh, in her Washington library, Mrs. Hoover kept one of millions of Hoover home cards. Save fuel, it read. Use wood when you can. Not every attempt to foster grassroots self-denial was successful. Hoover, by his own acknowledgement, failed miserably in his Buy a Pig campaign. <clears throat> a properly cared for pig, claimed the Food Administration, is no more unsanitary than a dog. Suburbia disagreed. His name was now a household word. It was more than a household word. Um, it entered, in fact, it's, it's uh, if you uh, go to Europe, where Hoover, to this day, is held in higher regard than he is in his, uh, in his own country, um, <clears throat> the word Hoover entered the language. It means to help. Uh, here, 
um, it became a synonym. Um, there were Valentines, for example, Hooverize meant to, to go without. I can Hooverize on dinner, went one Valentine's Day message, and on lights and fuel too. But I'll never learn to Hooverize when it comes to loving you. <laughs> when peace settled over the ravaged continent with misery its attendant and starvation its ironic reward, Hoover organized the American Relief Administration to feed 21 prostrate uh, countries from the North Sea to the Urals, including the Soviet Union. He despised communism. Um, loathed it with a lifelong passion. But he believed that ideology came second to feeding hungry people, and particularly hungry children. Um, he managed the unlikely feat of persuading Warren Harding and a Republican Congress to appropriate $20 million to relieve uh, famine in the Soviet Union. By the way, <laughs> he had in his apartment at the Waldorf, this gorgeous silk um, token uh, embroidered with the thanks of the Russian people signed by the great writer Gorky. And he displayed it in his living room. He said, you know, they, they've tried to rewrite history. They've forgotten, referring to the Soviet government. Soviet people didn't. But uh, he said, you know, I've got it um, just to prove that American generosity uh, to the infant Soviet Union had been what he claimed it was. Well, in 1920, Warren Harding's elected president. Uh, ironically, uh, Hoover's Washington neighbor, young FDR, writes a letter to a friend saying, I wish Herbert Hoover would run for president. We could not have a better one as a Democrat. And in fact, both parties wanted to enlist Hoover as a presidential candidate in 1920. Well, he finally let it be known that he was a Republican, but not just any Republican. He was a bull moose progressive Republican. In fact, he had supported Theodore Roosevelt's third party candidacy in 1912. So he was an activist, I guess you could say liberal uh, Republican, who believed that the old days of laissez-faire were gone forever. On the other hand, he despised socialism as much as communism. He didn't want bureaucracy, the deadening hand of bureaucracy. He spent his life looking for what you and I would call a third way, in between the old laissez-faire and, uh, and socialism. Uh, he became Secretary of Congress. Ironically, the president who was accused of doing too little was the secretary who was accused of doing too much, especially by Calvin Coolidge, um, who said, that man's given me advice for five years, all of it bad. Um, but this is just the tip of the iceberg of what Secretary um, Hoover did. The Commerce Department was a little tiny backwater in Washington until he came along. Um, <clears throat> he expanded the Census Bureau into an informational treasure trove for business planners. He undertook at Harding's request a study of national petroleum reserves. Commerce added new divisions dealing with housing, radio, and aeronautics. The first airport in Washington, D.C. was called Hoover Field on the site of the Pentagon. In 1926, Hoover played godfather to the Railway Labor Mediation Board. He envisioned 9,000 miles of inland waterways. He negotiated an unprecedented compact among seven southwestern states that were squabbling over use of the Colorado River. That is why Hoover Dam is called Hoover Dam. 
He dispatched explorers to South America to undermine British and Dutch monopolies of rubber. He regulated mine safety, sought ways to preserve the scenic splendor of Niagara Falls, and worried over oil slicks in Chesapeake Bay. He was an environmentalist long before that term came into fashion. Uh, he loved the outdoors. Um, in fact, as president, he uh, spent almost $200,000 of his own money to build a fishing camp 100 miles out in the, in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia. Uh, and he would go there almost every weekend. Uh, not just to fish, although he loved fishing, uh, but to work. He said, I've discovered that even the work of government can be made palatable under the trees. Um, and the amazing thing is, if you ever have a chance, it's now open to the public. It's called Camp Hoover. It was known as Camp Rapidan in his day. Mrs. Hoover designed the whole camp. There were 11 or 12 buildings. And um, the main, uh, the, the, the president's cottage was called Brown House, as a kind of joke on the White House. And she designed it. They wanted this to be absolutely to fit in with the local environment, which is what, uh, why they were there. So there were no foundations. And in fact, Brown House was built around a tree. The tree goes up through the, through the cottage. She, she wouldn't cut down a tree. Um, anyway, still Secretary of Commerce, he became president of Better Homes for America, wrote a manual for homeowners prodded 4,500 chapters of his organization into lowering the average cost of a new home by one-third. He churned out a new building code for municipalities to be accepted voluntarily, of course. He snatched regulation of the, quote, wireless telephone, what you and I call radio, away from the Bureau of Navigation. He chaired four conferences at which it was decided that certain radio bands would be set apart for public service broadcasting. So if you listen to NPR, think of Herbert Hoover. He also decided that there would be no British-style regimentation of the airwaves. There is no BBC in America. Again, Hoover's looking for this third way. In the course of his activities, he received an angry telegram from the radio preacher Amy Semple McPherson. Quote, please order your minions of Satan to leave my station alone, it commanded. You cannot expect the Almighty to abide by your wavelength nonsense. When I offer my prayers to him, I must fit in with his wave reception. Two weeks later, uh, Ms. McPherson disappeared with, um, with her lover. Um, and... Um, Another religious sect asked Hoover for permission to build a station from which to disseminate warnings of the world's imminent end. He told them to spend their money for time on existing outlets. If the world was really ending in a month, it would be a far wiser investment. <laughs> well, his uh, reputation was capped in the 1927 Mississippi flood, which was the greatest natural disaster in American history. There was no FEMA. Um, there was no brownie. Uh, to do a heck of a job. Um, what there was was Herbert Hoover. And he left Washington, he went out into the field and almost single-handedly cobbled together um, a, you know, a, a massive and, by the way, integrated um, relief response working with the Red Cross. So in 1928, he is really the in inevitable choice. Uh, people in America in 1928 said, Hubert Hoover. And uh, it was a question that answered itself. Um, he was going to be 
a very activist kind of president, a Theodore Roosevelt, uh, if you will. His first months in office were a whirlwind of reform. The New Republic said that not since Woodrow Wilson had so decisive a leader set the nation's priorities. Within the first month, he announced an expansion of civil service protection throughout the federal establishment. He canceled private oil leases on government lands, remember Teapot Dome. He issued an executive order opening to the public records of substantial tax refunds. He directed federal law enforcement officials to focus their efforts on gangster-ridden Chicago, where Al Capone held sway, announced plans for a White House conference on children's health, and directed one of his assistants to gather information on how to reorganize all ten of the government's major departments. Children were close to his heart long before it takes a village. In the 1920s, Americans celebrated every May 1st a Child Health Day because of the National Child Health Association founded by Herbert Hoover. Planning for the future was a Hoover fetish. His Bureau of Reclamation prepared blueprints for a series of dams on the Tennessee Valley and in Central California, forerunner of the TVA. The president invited a citizens committee to examine the question of a new federal department of education 50 years before Jimmy Carter established that body. In September 1929, he met with insurance executives and asked for their cooperation in devising old age pensions, the first step toward his, his plan to pay every American above the age of 65 $50 a month. Three months later, he asked Capitol Hill for a federal power commission, federal subsidies to county health units, a rural child health program, and reform of railroad rates in the banking system. He undertook a $5 billion program to overhaul federal prisons, no more, where they resembled Dickensian hovels, the new facility at Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, with its own chapel and modern library, reflected his taste for humane treatment and rehabilitation. Not surprisingly, Washington's less standardized sorts didn't know what to make of a chief executive who played medicine ball each morning on the White House lawn because it provided him with exactly three times as much exercise as tennis and six times as much as golf, who wolfed down five courses of a state dinner in 11 minutes and gave signals to eliminate a course if the meal ran over an hour. Then came Black Tuesday, October 29th when Wall Street collapsed. In a single day, 16 million shares were traded, that was a record at the time, and $30 billion vanished into thin air. Westinghouse lost two-thirds of its value. DuPont dropped 70 points in a day. The era of get-rich-quick was over. Jack Dempsey, America's first millionaire athlete, lost $3 million on Black Tuesday. Cynical New York hotel clerks asked incoming guests, you want a room for sleeping or for jumping? True to form, Hoover's response to the crash combined vigor with restraint. Up until this time, remember, it was assumed that boom and bust was divinely ordained. There was nothing the government could do. You basically had to take your medicine and wait for the economic cycle to uh, correct itself. Hoover did not believe that. First of all, he appealed to all the nation's governors to accelerate public works projects in their states. 
He organized a conference in January 1930 to convince the public that times were ripe for home building. Later that year, the President's Emergency Committee for Employment was created with 3,000 local chapters to coordinate grassroots relief and uh, exhort uh, Americans to, uh, to lift themselves by their bootstraps. He created a federal farm board to cushion wheat and cotton prices. As the initial recession, and that's what it was, for several months it was a recession, not a depression. By late 1930, things were really beginning to turn serious. Joblessness soared to record levels. Hoover expanded government's role far beyond the hands-off stance taken in earlier depressions. In fact, believe it or not, they coined the word depression because they thought that was less depressing than the usual word, slump. Um, there's a bit of public relations gone bad. In April 1930, he secured $150 million, uh, which, remember, you have to remember, this time the federal budget was about $3 billion. $150 million, that's 5% of the federal budget, a significant amount of money for his own crash public works program. He added 37,000 miles of highway. He threw a double-decked span of steel and cable across San Francisco's Golden Gate. He created federal land banks to halt farm foreclosures and home loan discount banks to afford homeowners similar protection. He launched the National Credit Association with half a billion dollars in capital and sent it out into the field to salvage tottering banks. But in the first month alone, 522 financial institutions went under and the program died a warning. He cut federal salaries by 15%. He never took a salary himself. Herbert Hoover is one of two American presidents, John Kennedy being the other, uh, who did not accept uh, his salary. In Hoover's case, he never took a dime for any of his public service. He said this country had given him so much that it was the least he could do to pay it back. He persuaded the Interstate Commerce Commission to reduce rates on rail, rail lines carrying water and forage to desperate farmers. Remember, by this time, the Dust Bowl has arrived to, uh, to um, multiply uh, the tragedy. He unveiled the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, funded with $3 billion to ransom financial institutions in the throes of deflation and a depositor's panic. He violated the gospel of balanced budgets and at the time it was considered incredibly radical. He actually called for a moratorium on the payment of Europe's war debts. Now, in the meantime, he had done something for which economists and others have still not forgiven him. He signed what's called the Smoot-Hawley Tariff, which had the effect of raising protectionist barriers around the American economy. And of course that set off uh, a chain reaction. I mean it was the worst thing that could have been done uh, under the circumstances. He did however remain adamant in one thing. He, he was adamant in opposing direct relief payments to individual Americans. Uh, the electorate then and history since has been unkind but Hoover was unmoved. A little collectivism he would observe, was like a little strychnine in a glass of milk. By contrast, quote, a voluntary deed 
is infinitely more precious to our national ideas and spirit than a thousandfold poured from the treasury. It's easy to criticize. But believe it or not, this was grounded in those same ideals. Hoover believed that what set America apart from every other country in the world was this spirit of voluntarism, you know, what de Tocqueville talked about in the 19th century, and this sense of neighborly generosity. That if there was a crisis, you could go to the American people, whatever it was, and they would respond. The problem with that, and when I say it became a ball and chain, that's the idea that raised him to the White House. The problem, of course, was that nothing had ever uh, begun to uh, measure up to the dimensions of the Great Depression. Uh, it was beyond individual or grassroots generosity as we now know. Will Rogers summed up the mood of the nation. If someone bit an apple and found a worm in it, Hoover would get the blame. Desperate encampments of tin and cardboard shacks were dubbed Hoovervilles. They were Hoover hogs. They were armadillos fit for eating. Hoover flags, which were empty pockets turned inside out. Hoover blankets, which were newspapers barely covering the destitute who were forced to sleep outdoors. And Hoover Pullmans, empty boxcars used by an army of vagabonds who were escaping from their roots. Rumor mongers claimed that the president had diverted public funds to build his fishing camp and that somehow he was involved in the kidnapping of the Lindbergh baby. Mrs. Hoover said it was no surprise that voters had turned on her husband in 1932. If she believed half of what they'd been told, she said she wouldn't vote for him either. In any event, in 1932, uh, he is swept out of office. Swept in in 28, swept out four years later to be replaced by Franklin D. Roosevelt. Uh, he returned to New York on Inauguration Day 1933 without Secret Service protection in those days. And that was a significant factor. He walks into the lobby of the Waldorf Astoria, uh, passing a ballroom full of people who were celebrating his departure from office. Um, death threats piled up at the hotel switchboard. His reputation was in shambles, yet he refused to fade away. Here's what I'm going to do, he told his White House secretary. I'm going to lay off for six or eight months, and then I'm going to start raising hell. I've caught a lot of it in the last four years. Now I'm going to talk and write and do any damn thing I want to. Anyway, I'll have a lot of fun. He had little fun for the next 12 years, which, of course, coincided with FDR's occupancy of the Oval Office, uh, during a period when Hoover was forced to defend himself against charges that he had somehow either caused the Great Depression or else had done nothing to combat it. In the fall of 1936, following an unsuccessful political comeback, he found a new cause, one much more congenial than office-seeking, uh, to engage his talents. He became chairman of the Boys Clubs of America. And that was a natural fit for this Iowa orphan who had earlier founded the American Child Health Association. Hoover defined the boy as, quote, our most precious possession. He is a periodic nuisance, yet a joy forever. Boys denied the pleasures of nature had to contend with policemen on the beat. But packs need not run into gangs, not so long as what he called his pavement boys had a place to play checkers, learn a trade, and steal nothing more harmful than second base. He was determined to start a hundred new boys clubs. In three years, he more than met his goal. And indeed, would remain chairman of the boys clubs uh, until the day he died, almost 30 years later. 
Before there was a Carter Center to monitor elections and pursue conflict resolution around the globe, there was the Hoover Institution on War, Revolution, and Peace. It's a landmark at Stanford University, a magnet for scholars, and a lightning rod for controversy. So was its namesake. Sixty years before Jimmy Carter drew criticism by visiting Fidel Castro's Cuba, Herbert Hoover returned to a Europe that was flirting with suicide. Friends told him not to go. The continent was a tinderbox, his itinerary a diplomatic tightrope. Wherever he went, Hoover would be expected to join in toasts to the President of the United States. That presented no problem, he said. But what if he was asked on foreign soil to defend Roosevelt's European policies? Not to worry, said Hoover. I can keep silent in seven languages. <laughs> a generation after he rescued them from wartime starvation, the children of Belgium turned out en masse to honor the man they called Uncle Hoover. Less successful was his unscheduled Berlin meeting with Adolf Hitler. The American visitor left shaking his head over purple-faced outbursts occasioned by the mention of the words Jew and democracy. Afterward, Hoover confided that a jury of Americans would no doubt find the leader of the Third Reich insane. Three years later, war came to the United States. In the wake of Pearl Harbor, presidential advisor Bernard Baruch urged FDR, in a spirit of national unity, to entrust home front mobilization to the man who had won a claim for his service as Woodrow Wilson's food administrator during the First World War. Roosevelt would have none of it. I'm not Jesus Christ, he said, and I'm not raising him from the dead. <laughs> Hoover himself managed that unlikely, unlikely feat with the invaluable assistance of Harry Truman. Fittingly, it was Roosevelt's death that brought the two men into contact for the first time. All Americans will wish you strength for your gigantic task. Hoover wrote the new president on April 12, 1945. You have the right to call for any service in aid of the country. Truman could have easily brushed this off as a mere courtesy. He was certainly under no obligation to the man who had served a generation of democratic orators as the perfect scapegoat. Yet he did the unconventional and the generous thing in the face of political advisors who said, what are you doing? You don't want to be associated with Herbert Hoover. Um, on May 24th, the president dispatched a warm, characteristically forthright note to his predecessor at the Waldorf Towers. If you should be in Washington, wrote Truman, I would be most happy to talk over the European food situation with you. Also, it would be a pleasure for me to become acquainted with you. When they met a few days later, the two men covered the globe in a far-ranging discussion that balanced Hoover's caustic assessment of Stalin with his Quaker belief that World War III was unthinkable. Said Hoover, a war with Russia means the extinction of Western civilization or what there is left of it. And remember, this is before the atomic bomb was dropped. In his diary, Truman recounted, quote, a pleasant and constructive conversation on food and the general troubles of U.S. presidents, two in particular. It was the start of an unlikely yet historic friendship between the oddest couple in American politics. Early in 1946, Truman dispatched the 71-year-old Hoover to 38 nations around the world in an effort to beg, borrow, and cajole enough food 
to avert mass starvation among the survivors of World War II. There's a wonderful scene. He goes to Argentina, and there's Juan and Juan Perón and Evita. And according to protocol, there's there's a state dinner, huge. The table's groaning. You know, all these people are starving. And uh, anyway, the Perones are living it up. And uh, there's over 200 people. And Hoover, uh, according to protocol, is like 183 you know, at the end of the table. And someone criticized him for going to see the Perones and, uh, and in effect groveling to them. He said, I would eat dirt uh, if that's what it took to get a million bushels of Argentine wheat. Um, well, that's what he got. We do not want the American flag flying over nationwide Buchenwalds, he told a national radio audience on his return. Truman showed his gratitude by restoring Hoover's name to the great engineering project that Roosevelt had called Boulder Dam. Um, the story of that, the story in itself, it was named Hoover Dam. And then when FDR came into office, his his Secretary of the Interior, terrible-tempered Harold Ickes, uh, decided on his own to kind of stick it to Hoover. And uh, he, he renamed the dam, Boulder Dam. And Will Rogers um, thought that was kind of mean-spirited and characteristic of Ickes. So he wrote a column in which suggested that uh, maybe there could be another dam called um, uh, Dam Ickes. Um, <laughs> In 1947, Truman asked Hoover to do something even more uh, significant in some ways, and that was to reorganize the executive branch of government. Now remember, the executive branch of government had exploded, quite understandably, to meet the needs of the Great Depression and World War II. Um, but it was, it was one thing for, Hoover to send, for Truman to send Hoover around the world on a food relief mission, it's quite another to ask Herbert Hoover, it's like letting the, you know, the fox into the chicken house, to come in and in effect you know, play around with the presidency as reconstructed by, by FDR. Um, do more with less. That was the theme of the Hoover Commission's reports, each one written by its chairman in order to fit on a single page of the New York Times. By no means all of his ideas were approved. For example, dead on arrival, was Hoover's proposal for an administrative vice president who would be entrusted with oversight of the federal budgetary process. But Harry Truman, re-elected against all odds in 1948, saw to it that more than 70% of the Hoover Commission recommendations were actually carried out. In fact, uh, Truman and uh, Hoover, it became almost a, a joke between them because when Eisenhower became president, uh, he somewhat reluctantly convened a second Hoover Commission um, and actually proved to be much less supportive, much less engaged than, than Harry Truman. By that time, when Eisenhower was ready to leave office, there's correspondence between Hoover and Truman in which they have a tongue-in-cheek debate over whether they're going to let Ike into their, what Hoover called our exclusive trade union of uh, former presidents. Now, neither man allowed personal friendship to get in the way of their profound political differences. During the 1948 campaign, for example, Truman didn't hesitate to remind people of the Hoover Depression. Hoover, who really was never a politician, he sat in as a suite at the Waldorf 
almost in tears. He couldn't believe that his good friend Harry Truman was saying these things about him. Well, Truman said, that's just politics. Um, and when the president fired General Douglas MacArthur in the spring of 1951, it was Hoover who helped to arrange the emotional joint session of Congress from which MacArthur all but declared his candidacy for president. In time, the old general, in the words of the ballad he so melodramatically evoked, just faded away. No such fate awaited Harry Truman. 10,000 people greeted their famous neighbor when he returned to Independence, Missouri for good early in 1953. Uh, Characteristically, Truman took it in stride as the payoff for what he called 30 years of hell and hard work. After you've served as President of the United States, said Truman, you can never again expect to be a plain, ordinary citizen. That did not keep him from trying. The mayor of Independence asked him what was the first thing he did after crossing the threshold of 219 North Delaware Street. Said Truman, I took the grips up to the attic. (laughs) Actually, he had little choice. Until 1958, when Congress enacted legislation providing former presidents with $50,000 a year for office expenses, Truman had little staff, no Secret Service protection, his only assured source of income was a monthly pension of $119.32 that he earned as a colonel in the Army Reserves. He could never lend his name to any transaction, said Truman, that, quote, would commercialize on the prestige and the dignity of the office of the president. True to to form, he served on no commercial boards. He did earn $600,000 for his presidential memoirs, but much of that went to his research team. Sales of the two-volume work were disappointing. By the time he paid salaries and taxes, the author complained that his own share amounted to just $37,000. Eventually, he was forced to sell off the Truman family farm, 200 acres of rich black earth that was quickly converted into that miracle of post-war affluence, a shopping center. So when Congress took up the issue of pensions for former presidents, Truman was outspoken in his support. This put Herbert Hoover in an awkward position. As I said earlier, Hoover had never accepted a penny uh, from any government for his uh, public service. So he was more than reluctant to pocket a $25,000 pension. On the other hand, he didn't want to embarrass his friend Harry Truman, who needed the money, uh, unlike Hoover. Uh, In the end, he took it and he used it to pay a, a battery of secretaries who helped answer his mail. Adding to his financial burdens, Truman had a presidential library to build. This is something that people never stop to think about, understandably. Uh, It was a concern for President Ford. It was one of the things that brought President Ford and President Carter together. The fact of the matter is, when you leave office, everyone knows about the Secret Service and the office and the staff, uh, etc. What no one stops to factor in is the presidents need to raise now over $100 million in some cases, the, the Bush is talking about $300 million, uh, for a presidential library. All of that money has to be raised privately. Uh, for President Ford, he said it was the toughest thing he ever did. It was about $9 million to build the Ford Museum originally. He and Jimmy Carter used to compare notes. Carter went back to Plains, Georgia, discovered that um, the, uh, the peanut company was uh, almost bankrupt uh, and um, sold off much of... Uh, uh, actually sold it to Dwayne Andrews, sold off um, much of his, uh, of his property and still had to raise the money to build the library. In any event, Truman was the first, uh, in effect, um, 
his library cost $1.8 million, and he raised almost all of that. At its dedication in July 1957, Hoover and Eleanor Roosevelt put aside their differences to share the platform with their mutual friend. Before the day ended, it was a you know typical scorching summer day in Missouri. And uh, it's amazing to think that these elderly folks, you know, sort of tottering about on the stage, uh, were able to get through this ceremony. Um, a fluttery admirer approached Hoover and asked how former presidents spend their days. Uh, to which he replied, Madam, we spend our days taking pills and dedicating libraries. Um, his own schedule suggested otherwise. In his 85th year, Hoover traveled 14,000 miles, delivered 20 speeches, and published the latest of nearly two dozen books. He dedicated four boys clubs, lent his name to as many schools, and raised over a million dollars for the Hoover Institution. He also answered 21,000 letters rising before dawn to scratch out personal replies to children who wrote him seeking advice or historical perspective. There was a, a bathroom in the suite, uh, which, which Hoover dubbed the Black Hole of Calcutta, and that's where he kept his memoirs. Three thick volumes, had, they had a bathtub full of them, and he would send them out to children who, who wrote letters to him. Um, he also worked for years, for 30 years, uh, on, uh, on, a, on a book, uh, variously known as the Magnum Opus uh, and the Roosevelt Book, and it was basically was a it went through several permutations, but it basically was a, a critique of American foreign policy, beginning with the recognition of the Soviet Union in 1933 under FDR. And the story is told one morning, like many old men, he had trouble sleeping, so he would get up in the middle of the night and sit at his desk and with a stubby pencil. He used pencils instead of ballpoint pens. He said ballpoint pens were invitations to verbosity. Um, and with a stubby pencil, you were going to be much shorter. So anyway, he had this little pencil. He'd, he'd write, and for, for, for fun, he would take you know, letters from children, and he'd write. He eventually published a volume of a wonderful book. Uh, but anyway, one house guest woke up you know, uh, at 5 o'clock, and he saw the lights on, and he went out and saw Mr. Hoover at his desk. He said, Mr. Hoover, you know, it's... At five in the morning, what are you doing? He said, oh, I'm just making my Roosevelt book more pungent. Um, Harry Truman was only slightly less active than his friend in New York. He kept regular office hours in a corner of his library overlooking the courtyard where today he and Bess are buried. Nothing pleased him more than to conduct tours of the place for young people. Uh, Truman was a natural-born teacher, and he loved history. He was the last American president not to go to college, and he was very sensitive about that fact, and in effect compensated for it all his life by being a voracious reader, and above all, of history. And I think it lent a very special quality to the, to the Truman presidency. I mean, one could only wish that every president uh, were as steeped in the lessons and the perspective, and yes, even the humility that I think a deep uh, knowledge of history uh, can, can supply. In his spare time, he played with his grandchildren, devoured libraries of books, and smacked his lips over good bourbon. He also indulged his wanderlust. He visited Churchill at his country home outside London. He had an audience with Pope Pius XII, picked up an honorary degree from Oxford, where a three-minute ovation moved him to tears. Closer to home, Truman, the music lover, 
donned white tie and tails to conduct the Kansas City Philharmonic in John Philip Sousa's Stars and Stripes Forever. And he had, a, as he would say, a hell of a time. Celebrity, however, had its downside, as the former president discovered. This is amazing. No Secret Service, remember. In the, in the late 1950s, the Trumans decide, uh, he decides he's going to drive best cross-country to New York to visit Margaret and her husband, um, Clifton Daniel, uh, and their grandchildren. And, uh, well, needless to say, at every stop along the way, uh, the Trumans were besieged by autograph seekers. And even better, at one point, he improperly changed lanes, and uh, a Pennsylvania highway patrolman uh, pulled him over to the side of the road. Didn't give him a ticket, though. Um, he enjoyed even less success as a political backseat driver. In 1960, he found John F. Kennedy's Catholicism less offensive than the appeasement policies pursued in the 1930s by Kennedy's father, who, of course, was ambassador to Great Britain and uh, notoriously pro-Chamberlain and at least, um, well, not pro-Hitler, but certainly uh, pro-appeasement of Hitler. As Truman said, it's not the Pope I'm afraid of, it's the Pop. <laughs> Once Kennedy was nominated, however, he quickly fell in a lot. He hated Richard Nixon. Uh, he believed that Nixon had called him a traitor in the 1952 campaign. Um, as he told, <laughs> he told more than one audience that fall, if you vote for Nixon, you ought to go to hell. <laughs> Directed to the point. The Kennedy-Nixon race was but the latest instance where Truman and Hoover agreed to disagree. Its outcome, however, produced a, an astonishing role reversal. This story is still not well known. Um, there were Republicans, including Dwight Eisenhower, who did not want to concede the election, who believed that enough votes had been stolen in Illinois and Texas, uh, there were enough voting irregularities there and elsewhere to make Richard Nixon president. Um, there were demands for a national recount, and Republican national chairman uh, set all this in motion. Uh, and anyone who remembers 2000 uh, can imagine, you know, the prolonged period of uncertainty that would have ensued. This at the height of the Cold War. Uh, behind the scenes, an unlikely pair of power brokers were at work. Ambassador Joseph Kennedy, the pop Truman found so objectionable was a very good friend of Herbert Hoover's. He, in fact, had been a mainstay of the original Hoover Commission. Bobby Kennedy's first job was with the Hoover Commission. Um, in the years since, the ambassador had remained friendly with the former president, to whom he now appealed for help in certifying his son's election. With a well-timed phone call, Hoover was able to engineer a public handshake between JFK and a somewhat reluctant Richard Nixon. President Kennedy reciprocated by visiting Hoover in his Waldorf Tower suite and by making the old man honorary chairman of the Peace Corps. If not yet in vogue, Herbert Hoover was at last out of Coventry. At the age of 88, he thanked Truman for adding 10 years to his lifespan. Yours has been a friendship, he wrote, which has reached deeper into my life than you know. Truman responded that Hoover must reach 100 as he fully intended to do. On the eve of his 90th birthday, in August of 1964, a frail, toothless man sat in his wheelchair, clutching a blue robe and savoring the World Series on one of the new color television sets 
uh, to which American consumers were being introduced that fall. Reluctant to have his picture taken, Herbert Hoover relented only when it was pointed out that the sole other president to reach such a milestone, John Adams, would doubtlessly have wept at such an innovative disruption to his palsied old age. Suddenly, Hoover turned to the wife of a young friend. What did she most want out of life? He asked her. She thought, and then replied truthfully, that she was content with her lot, satisfied with her home, happy with her husband and children. For her, the status quo was a worthy aspiration. Herbert Hoover drew back in horror. How can you say a thing like that, he demanded. I want more. I want to write a better book. I want to have more friends. I just want more. Two months later, he was stricken with internal bleeding. Fighting words for his recovery came from a hospital room in Kansas City. If he hadn't broken his ribs in a recent bathtub fall, said Truman, he would be on his way to the Waldorf to offer encouragement in person. Bathtubs are a menace to ex-presidents, Hoover wired back. <laughs> For as you may recall, a bathtub rose up and fractured my vertebrae when I was in Venezuela on your world famine mission in 1946. It was the last message sent from Suite 31A of the Waldorf Towers. Hoover died on the morning of October 20th, 1964. He was my good friend, said Truman, on learning of Hoover's death. And I was his. Truer words were never spoken. There is a curious sequel of sorts, as long as reconciliation is our theme. Um, Mr. Truman stopped going to his office regularly about 1966. His health began to decline. Um, however, a year before that, a remarkable tribute was paid to him. I remember it was Harry Truman who, in 1948, talked about universal health insurance for Americans, particularly for the elderly. It took a while, as it sometimes does, but under Lyndon Johnson, that came to pass in the Medicare program. So in 1965, LBJ flew to Independence, and at the Truman Library, in front of Harry and Bess Truman, signed the Medicare bill, and then he presented them with Medicare cards number one and number two. Now, uh, three, four years after that, a somewhat less welcome visitor appeared, uh, Richard Nixon, in the first year of his presidency, wanting bygones to be bygones, showed up in Independence, and he brought with him the piano that had been in the Truman White House that he was donating to the, to the, to the Truman Museum. And he sat down, as you know, Mr. Nixon played the piano. He sat down thinking that he would delight Harry Truman by playing his theme song. And he played the Missouri Waltz. And it turned out that Harry Truman hated the Missouri Waltz. <laughs> Could not abide it. And was so sick of hearing it. For 30 years, the only saving grace was, by that time, he was too deaf to even hear what Mr. Nixon was playing. <laughs> Anyway, questions, comments, observations. Um, anyone? Yeah. You love them all, but who's your favorite president? 
That's not a fair question. I, I don't have a fair... Well, obviously, Gerald Ford is my favorite president um, for reasons that, you know, probably disqualify me from answering that question. Um, I think that... I don't mean to be facetious. I mean, I would, you know, reword the question to, you know, who's the most important president? And there's no doubt that Franklin Roosevelt and Ronald Reagan are the two presidents who... I think had the greatest historical impact. Theodore Roosevelt at the beginning of the century arguably belongs in that troika. Uh, Woodrow Wilson is is uh, is is very close. So, uh, but every every one of them, you know, every one of them is more interesting than the textbooks suggest. Um, it's interesting, you know, in the C-SPAN series. I'm, I'm a couple weeks ago, a gentleman called in. I'll call him a gentleman. Um, uh, he was uh, hot under the collar and he was very upset because he thought we were trying to uh, deify all of these presidents and I thought um, I bit my tongue and, um, but I thought to myself you know the interesting thing is that's exactly the opposite of what we're trying to do what we're trying to do is to show you these people as human beings um, and in, un- in unguarded moments because so much of the modern presidency has been Subsumed in this, you know, political theater, um, that it's uh, it's it's rare when when you feel like you're breaking through all that. And um, in any event, Theodore Roosevelt certainly created the modern presidency. Uh, Woodrow Wilson uh, took America into the world in a way that um, still reverberates. There is still the notion of Wilsonian foreign policy um, which is also subject to various interpretations but uh, Franklin Roosevelt arguably saved democratic capitalism he certainly saved capitalism from capitalists Um, and uh, I think and Ronald Reagan uh, whatever you you know the people debate the Cold War for years but there's no doubt that Ronald Reagan transformed the political culture of this country and left behind a consensus that was quite different from what he found on taking office. So, uh, anyway. Yeah? You referred to the accomplishments of Hoover, which was deserving of Do you feel, in light of that, that the negativism diminish uh, a blaming Hoover for certain things? Could you repeat the question? Yeah, talking about in light of the accomplishments that I've sort of listed, um, why the, the negativism, the the, uh, the 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 you know the the, the public uh, view of Hoover, which is unrelievedly negative, arising out of the Great Depression, um, I, you know, once popular images get formed, it's it, it's tough to uh, to change them. On the other hand, it's very interesting that this Rasmussen poll that I mentioned earlier in the week, um, in terms of, of presidential popularity, or more favorable, unfavorable, very interesting. Uh, I looked at it again this morning before I came over here, and um, Herbert Hoover actually ranked above Lyndon Johnson uh, in um, favorable, 48% favorable, 34% unfavorable. And... Um, that 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 mildly surprises me. Um, I think in recent years, I think there's some greater awareness of Hoover's humanitarian work, but there's no doubt that he will forever be uh, indelibly associated with the Great Depression. 
and in some ways, um, and I forget talking to his granddaughter. You forget how personal these things are. His granddaughter told me the story of how I was a little girl. She was playing with a friend, and the friend's mother came and grabbed her and dragged her away and said, don't you know who that is? Her grandfather cost her father his job. So, I mean, it was that, you know, that personalized. Um, and given that, I don't, I don't think you, you know, that's the scarlet letter. I don't, I don't know how you, how you remove it. You have one more? Yeah. As far as uh, technology is concerned, you see history as it happens. How does that impact? Except it's not history as we see it, because uh, I, I mean I'm not being facile. He says he says we see history as it happens today due to modern technology, and and my my rejoinder is it's it's really not history as it happens. What we're seeing is all too often entertainment presented um, as unfolding storyline. A storyline presented, packaged, interpreted, exploited by the media. And so um, history doesn't become history until a certain amount of time goes by and a certain amount of perspective can form. In the case of the presidents, for example, um, the libraries open, the papers become available. Think how differently we see Dwight Eisenhower from the way academics viewed him at the end of his presidency. Think how differently we look at Harry Truman. Harry Truman left office with some of the lowest poll ratings ever recorded. And 50 years later, he's a popular hero. So the history that we saw even then, before the internet, you know, the 24-7 news cycle, um, there's a difference between headlines and history. Right there? Yeah. Uh, I want to ask you about books of First Ladies, and I don't know if I've ever seen one about Coolidge's wife or... There is a new book about to appear about Mrs. Coolidge by um, Bob Farrell, F-E-R-R-E-L-L, Robert H. Farrell, and it's quite good. It's in the University of Kansas series. In fact, that's where, if you want to look at First Lady books, the University of Kansas, go online, go to the University of Kansas Press, and they have a number of volumes. They have a book about every president, and they're now doing a First Lady series, and a number of those books have already appeared, and Grace Coolidge is, uh, is, is forthcoming. One more? You got one more? Oh, gosh. Way back there. Um, I was interested if you briefly mentioned about their children. I don't, don't really hear about it. No, well, it was a very, very private family. Um, they had two sons, Herbert Jr. and Alan. Herbert Jr., adding to his father, adding to everything else during the Hoover presidency, uh, Herbert Jr. suffered from tuberculosis and um, was in a sanatorium for much of those four years. His father only got to visit him once during that period because of the demands of office. Um, and right after they left office, uh, there were stories in the press, false, uh, suggesting that Alan Hoover, the son, uh, was guilty of uh, financial wrongdoing and the purchase of a ranch in California. Well, you know, it, again, it was all part of this uh, exploitation of the, uh, you know, in the spring of 1933, the most popular song in America 
was Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf? And there are psychologists at the time who attributed its popularity to public relief over the departure of Herbert Hoover from office. Thank you very much. Hope to see you tonight.